We've had several shows on indigenous wisdom and land rights in the past. And unfortunately, we feel that it was time again to bring this topic to the airwaves. Unfortunately, not because we don't like this topic, but because of the drama that is unfurling at Standing Rock in North Dakota. And that's our focus today. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights. Lessons from Standing Rock. In this hour of an organic conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Indigenous rights have been violated since the beginning of time. But one would think that by now we would have seen and understood the injustice of the past and revised our stance and approach to land use in general and in particular when it includes land of the First Nations or any other indigenous groups in this country or anywhere else in the world. Unfortunately, not so. The developments around Standing Rock in North Dakota, where an oil pipeline is going through sacred land, including underneath an important river, has raised massive political, cultural, environmental and ethnic concerns. It is the sad but classic human old fight between people and corporations. This week we are speaking with a Native American elder about what is happening in North Dakota and what is at stake at Standing Rock and what the lessons are that so urgently need to become a much greater part of our way of life. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. All that and more is coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information, batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, Anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. Our focus in this hour of an organic conversation is Standing Rock and the controversy around the oil pipeline in North Dakota. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights. Lessons from Standing Rock. All that and more in just a minute, right after the break. Stay tuned. <music> Thank you. 
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our focus in this hour is the controversy in North Dakota around the oil pipeline going through sacred land known as Standing Rock. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. And I'm now speaking with David Escobar, Lenka Poton Indian, member of the indigenous Kukskatan Collective. David, do we have you on the line? I'm on the line. Thank you for making time. And uh, I know you're very much involved in both the issue at Standing Rock as well as teaching and speaking about ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, which in my intro I spoke has been pretty much violated since the beginning of time. Before we dive into that, though, I want to give you a background. How did you grow up as part of your Native American heritage? Who influenced you the most? Yeah, thanks for the question. And uh, thanks again for the invite. It's been a pleasure and honor to, to know you and the work that you yourself have been doing around the environment and our what some call Mother Earth, right? Yes, thank and, you. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I grew up in San Francisco, and I think the um, the person who most influenced me was my great aunt, who actually helped instill uh, uh, you know a lot of the indigenous values that my grandma's community had. And so, you know, as a young as a young man living in the mission as both a Latino with this sort of underlying underlayment of uh, indig- indigeneity becomes kind of interesting, to say the least. You know, you have uh, be eating a, a Salvadorian pupusa and uh, and all of a sudden my my great aunt starts I'm about to poke it with a, a with a knife and a, and a fork and she like almost has a heart attack and she says no you don't you, you never do that to uh, to any to the corn to the tortilla and i said well how come you know this i was about six years old she goes well that's the face of the creator right so little bits and pieces like that gems like that spotted my entire life and uh, it's not until you you become uh, older and uh um, you, you begin to sort of connect all these dots <laughs> yeah, integrated. together, right? <clears throat> sure. and so and so, really, it, it really she was the one who really sort of instilled a lot of these these values and uh, ways of being, right? Uh, talking to when she used to talk to the the plants and the flowers. As a matter of fact, my mom still she she herself sort of still does that. And so prayer, you know, all these things. Sort of, and, and again, granted, this is in an urban, you know, San Francisco, the Mission District, outer Mission District, you know, or a very urban sort of setting with buses and cars at the same time. Still, these uh, apertures where our indigenous value system can still be demonstrated and practiced, right? So, what is um, what is the underlying philosophy, if you look back now to your grandmother, that guided her life that you are now applying to to yours? Yeah, well, it was it was ancient the ancient value system. You know, I would I would say that I would say a couple of things. To that. One, you know, I don't want to over romanticize this uh, these notions of indigeneity at the same time. And and I would say that they have evolved over you know over 500 years. I'd be not proper in in acknowledging that Catholic system, the synchronicity of all that with indigeneity, is all part of that. Now, I think. For my family, the real spiritual parts of, of Christianity or Catholicism, and then finding a, a real nice connection to maintaining ancient uh, indigenous ways of being and knowing was amazing, right? Especially in an urban setting, especially far away from the interior territory where uh, we grew up. 
they grew up is fascinating to me. And I think that that is something that is ongoing for me to look at and reflect upon. And, and, and to the degree that I'm able to also practice it, right, and enjoy it uh, with my children now and passing that on to my children, who they themselves are now, you know, growing up in the United States in a uh, multicultural, uh, very, uh, you know, modern way of being at the same time, balancing, having that balance of maintaining those value systems and practicing it, which is, that's, that's the key, right, Olga? It's really, how do we, how do we walk upon Mother Earth? Going beyond even identity of indigeneity, right? It's really, we are response to the world. You know, what is my response to the world? What is my children's response to the world going to be? You know, and my job is to sort of begin to instill those responses this planet. Yeah, great. Um, let's let's dive into that a little more. I would think that our listeners here on an organic conversation have a general sense of reverence and for life and food and or at least are interested in that. And mm -hmm. that's really the heartbeat of the show in a way, respect mm -hmm. of the feminine, whether that's soil or womb. Mm -hmm. What are the what are the basic principles of what you're talking about? If somebody doesn't know details about Native American wisdom, is it always take less than than what you give back or what what are what are kind of fundamental yeah, truths yeah, yeah. in that's that? A great question. <clears throat> yeah, and it really is something that I think your listeners are already sort of in tune with, which is reciprocity. I mean, that's one of the part of my teaching at Dominican was really having the students, right, really understand, to begin to understand and to have some glimpse at indigenous value systems, because that's what we're really talking about. We're really talking about a value system. And one of those points of, of uh, tenets, right, is reciprocity. And reciprocity, you know, the recycling, reuse, uh, all these, you know, modern terms are really ancient practices that are not just indigenous to the Americas, but I think at one point, worldwide, we had these indigenous values, right? And as John Trudell one of the former um, American Indian Movement chairperson said, you know, at one point we all wore feathers. And so it's really new way of thinking and being really isn't new. It's really sort of recycling itself again because new awareness about where this planet is going in terms of its waste and use of things is what we're really challenging. And it's really we're really sort of, again, sort of coming back to indigenous practice and wisdom. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and our topic in this hour is ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. And I'm speaking with David Escobar, Lenka Poton Indian, member of the indigenous Cuxcatan Collective and the former adjunct professor for Native American studies at Dominican University. How does resistance fall into this? I don't want to call it aggression, but and yeah. we, we will talk about Standing Rock in a, in a minute, of course, the mm. issue at hand. But where does the resistance or violence or force, let's just say force, come mm. into play? Is that part of it or is it always a nonviolent approach? I think it depends on what our definition of resistance and violence is. There's different sorts of resistance, there's different words, um, ways of, of, of violence. There's internal sort of psychological violence. I think that resistance, I'm glad that you brought up that word, because it's a word that 
that the elders in Kushkat, and by the way, Kushkatan is one of the terms that was used for what is known today as El Salvador, right? That's a new label for that territory. Uh, it was called Kushkatan or uh, Manawara, so they had different names prior to first contact. But one of the things that the elders have pointed out is that indigenous people, at least from our perspective uh, in Central America, are Lenca and Nahuatl Maya communities, like to use the word resistance versus rebellion. The way that they make the distinction is that when a thief comes into your house and takes over your house, you really are not rebelling against that. You're really resisting the other. And so that's a definite, clear way of the elders defining resistance. Resistance, and then you get into the details of that and saying, well, what does that mean? Is it uh, violent resistance? And it could mean that. It could mean resistance or undermining the bureaucracies at one point were trying to be implemented in, mm-hmm. in Central America. So there's different ways of resisting, right? And so I think that I think the uh, you know the founding uh, persons who what we call now the United States felt that their resistance had to be violent. I think it really it really depends, right? The, every situation, every condition. Every possibility is different. So I can't really speak to, you know, whether or not violence is appropriate or not. I think that that really uh, depends on on every situation, especially if you're defending, you know, your children, your family, uh, loved ones, friends. Even the Bible talks to that, you know, you're able to defend your family. And I think what—and this brings brings up another topic in terms of reciprocity, right? Who do we have reciprocity with? We have reciprocity amongst each other. But we also have reciprocity with our mother. You mean the earth in this case? The earth, right. Yeah, that that would be my next question anyway. Um, It seems like the guiding principle, really, the, the or the overarching theme is is respect for mother, right? Respect for earth. When your grandmother said, don't poke a fork in the corn to Tia, because that's the face of the creator. Was that what she was speaking of? Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's a reverence to, to that face. And it really, that really spoke, speaks to the reverence, not only as you plant the corn, as you water the corn, as you pick the corn, as you cook the corn, as you eat the corn, all these different levels, right? There's this reverence for every stage. And so, once again, you know, we come back to how do we then talk about these values with our families and with our friends, right? It's really understanding these different levels of reverence, right, that we have to maintain and sort of incorporate in our daily life. Do you do you differentiate in that between nature and earth? What's the relationship between those two? Or is it the, is it the same from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it dep- you know, I would say that every different nation, every different indigenous community has a different understanding of that. But for us, they're one and the same, but then at the same time, they're, they're different. It's the diversity within multiplicity. The earth itself is an entity, and the, the grass that grows on top of it is, is its hairs, as some mm-hmm. nations say it, sure. right? But it's still one and the same, at the same time, different. And so, and so there's a, a, a multiplicity of, of mother and diversity, 
Sure. But still yet one in the same. Right? Her, and I think, her, that, I think, yeah. I think your, your, your listeners know that. Her in all her forms and mm-hmm. shapes. Uh, right. we, we want to talk about Standing Rock and the issue in North Dakota, um, but mm-hmm. we're going to take a quick break. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights lessons from Standing Rock is our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and I'm speaking with a reoccurring guest, uh, David Escobar, who has been on the show some six plus years ago. And we'll, we'll look at that time frame too, what has changed, if anything, have things gotten worse or better in just a minute. David is Lenka Poton Indian, member of the indigenous Cuxcatan Collective and former adjunct professor for Native American studies at the Dominican University. David, uh, again, thanks for making time and um, stand by for just a minute. We'll be right back with more. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. Our main focus in this hour here on an organic conversation. And my guest today is David Escobar. He is Lenka Poton Indian and member of the indigenous Cuxcatan Collective, also the former adjunct professor for Native American studies at Dominican University. David, let's let's talk about Standing Rock itself. You were on the show some six plus, maybe seven years ago when we first mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. it, and the issue of Standing Rock is as new as it is old. The pipeline, it seems like we are repeating themes and topics here of disrespect of land and cultures and people. Can you frame the issue for the public who are not quite as dialed in on this? Yeah, once again, we're for those that might have uh, tuned in late, you know, we're really talking about the clash of value system. The difference between how Western modernity sees a rock and how indigeneity, indigenous value systems also see that same rock. 
uh, on the one hand, for some, it's dead, and for others, that rock is alive. And I do this better in, in the classroom with stick figures, and I get more detailed into, into sort of this clash of value systems. But that's what we're really looking at when we look at, 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 what, at what's happening at Standing Rock. So I think you're correct that these issues uh, have, are, have been ongoing worldwide to a lot of indigenous people and non-indigenous people alike. So it's, uh, it really speaks to uh, this, this clash. What's happening at Standing Rock is really interesting because you have this pipeline that is intended to be built by uh, it's a Texas-based energy uh, corporation called uh, Energy Transfer Partners, where there's going to be transportation apparently of over 570,000 barrels of crude oil on a daily basis from North Dakota. Illinois. It's like a $4 billion project, uh, first proposed in 2014, and it was anticipated to, to be completed this year. But what Standing Rock has done is really converged, created intersection between a whole host of different nations and tribes and um, communities of indigenous and non-indigenous communities to converge there. I think our gut tells us that something is awry. If you begin to think about transporting over 570,000 barrels of crude oil on a daily basis, and not only that, but then you have that pipeline traveling underneath the Missouri River, uh, which is the primary source for uh, drinking water for the Standing uh, Rock Sioux, affecting over 10,000 people, and I would say beyond. Here again, you know, we... Water, and you could say, you know, again, in terms of the value systems, water, rock, earth, it's the same story once again. You know, you have appropriation of, of, of land, appropriation of, and, des- and uh, desecration of, um, of sacred sites in that area that mean, be, you know, much more to the Standing Rock uh, Lakota people, Sioux tribe, yet no, you know, money is at the core of it is, is, you know, money, greed, right? And one of the things also is the Hazardous Materials Safety Administration uh, overall has reported over 3,000 uh, incidents where there's leaks and ruptures of uh, oil and gas pipes, uh, pipes since 2010. It's, you know, again, traversing you know, the burial ground. And that, that's really the issue here. We're, we're really facing the contamination of water. Right. And if you if you've been on Facebook, if you've been on if you watch TV, if you watch Twitter, whatever, you know, you are going to see over and over again. Water is life. Water is life. And, and you're right. Is- it does come at an interesting time where the presidential election, um, somebody just being appointed to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, who was the most outspoken person on behalf of the tobacco industry, saying that smoking is not harmful, now leading our environmental charge in the country. So there is an, there's an interesting outpour or convergence of time and issues from climate change and water issues and energy issues that we certainly have, and the need for energy, our dependency on energy, and yet this kind of rising new environmental mindfulness and respect, Native American or not, it's interesting that even uh, Navy veterans, uh, soldiers, U.S. soldiers who, 
you know, vowed to protect the country with their lives overseas in wars are now at Standing Rock and saying, right. this cannot be the country I'm protecting. I'm, that we need to actually protect the land right. and the people and the ethnic rights and not just right. the interests of corporations. So right. you're right, it's an interesting amalgam of interests all coming uh, to bear at, at Standing Rock. Right. What would a compromise or even solution look like? Is there such a thing as a as a compromise? I don't, you know, no, I don't, in this instance, I mean, I've, I've, I've thought about this, and, you know, you, you, uh, I think you mentioned this question was going to be coming up, and I, I've thought about it hard, and I just, this is not, this is it. This is, Standing Rock is actually a metaphor, I think, for the whole country. We're standing on a rock, and this is our stand. If we are going to survive as as a people, I think, as a nation, as, as, as a people, as, as a human, as human beings, this is one of those moments we are, we're at the brink because this, if, if, if this thing goes through, it's going to set precedent for a whole lot more. Of course. Can you describe the scene at Standing Rock? I know you have personally have friends there or relatives uh, or mm -hmm. friends with relatives. What, what's mm -hmm. the, what's the, Spirit. What's the energy? What's the the biggest threats right now yeah. to to the demonstrators, yeah. to the yeah, to have, the resistance? Uh, I have family members there uh, now as we speak. Um, I have friends who have family there. Uh, the Bay Area, for those of you that know, don't know, is one of the, the biggest concentrations of of Native Americans in the country. You mean the San Francisco uh, Bay Area? The San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Relocation Act relocated thousands of uh, indigenous people uh, from South Dakota, Lakota, Navajo, Dene, uh, Choctaw, Cherokee. So, I mean, there's all kinds of different intertribal factions here in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. uh, and many folks that I know that live here, their families from the Dakotas, from the reservations throughout the country, and Central America and South America have actually converged over um, at Standing Rock to make that make one of these final stands. Spirits are high. I think uh, people there really do want uh, support. And to the listeners, if you can write to your congressperson, to your state legislature um, about uh, your opposition to um, to this uh, um, line going through. Um, please do it. You know, the calls. I mean, I think there's uh, not one sort of, there's not a, a panacea here. I think we really have to stand together. Uh, donations of money is is uh, important. The veterans are going out there. They're going to need a lot of uh, food. We have to feed people. You know, we need to supply blankets and supply all kinds of different things. Uh, Because the winter is coming too, right? North winter Dakota coming, winter, yeah, yeah. it's really, really, it'll be right, hard right. throughout the winter to oh my God. keep it, this it, resistance it gets, going. It gets really cold out there. And so I think the uh, brothers and sisters that are out there really need that kind of support all the way around. What are they saying? What are they saying in regard to to um, aggression or violence? Well, the, the violence is coming from, uh, you know, the from the state and the local police and uh, the authorities there. Um, if you look on, uh, if, you, if you have Facebook, if you're, if you're looking on uh, different uh, media outlets, you know, these things are not being reported, but you can clearly see that there is complete 
oppression and, and, and repression of folks who, um, for the most part, are, are there trying to pray. Just uh, disheartening to see that when these issues come up, the state always tends to lean toward the rights of, of the corporations, uh, including the state in this regards, too. So... It's interesting you mentioned support, and we want to uh, talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, let me just reset real quick. Ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. That's our focus here in this hour of an organic conversation, speaking very acutely about the situation in North Dakota, where an oil pipeline is supposed to connect five states, bringing crude oil through ancient sites in North Dakota and the resistance against that plan. Uh, we're speaking with David Escobar. He's Lenka Poton, Indian, also the former adjunct professor for Native American studies at the Dominican University and a member of the indigenous Cuxcatan Collective. The support is an interesting topic because I know that even here north of San Francisco in Marin County, the Board of Supervisors has released or is planning to release a declaration in support of the resistance. Are you up to date on that? Yeah, I had heard that, and I'm very pleased that um, you know local governments are, are doing the best that they can to actually lend uh, uh, support that way. I think any sort of support, whether it's political, monetary, uh, other tangible goods to uh, be sent out there, is doing your part. You know, but I really think that. Uh, and you're doing your part, Helga, by you know having me on and actually having a conversation about the pipeline in Standing Rock. Um, I know that the, the UN uh, is involved. I know that uh, uh, Tony Gonzalez from American Indian Movement West is also he's one of the delegates, as I as I myself under the American Indian Movement to the UN. Uh, we'll be bringing this issue up again at the United Nations Indigenous Permanent Forum, which happens every year in May. And I've been lucky to been you know participating in that uh, under the uh, auspices of the American Indian Movement. But these are these are these are uh, anything that we can do, um, both in terms of educating the general public, educating our, our friends and neighbors about the issue, is is going to be critically important. We have to make one major push, one big stand together collectively as a people. Uh, and when I say that, I say all of our people need to make this stand. It's not just going to be indigenous people. It's going to be all of us trying to make a difference and making the stand. This is, is like like what I said earlier, standing rock. We have to stand on that rock. It's a great message that the ocean or the land doesn't know if you're a Democrat or Republican. This is not a political issue in any way. This is a people's issue and we are all affected by it, whether that's the the coal mine or the coal power plant next to the school where our kids go, or in this case, an oil pipeline going underneath an important river and, and going through sacred land. It doesn't really matter in which shape or form it comes. The forms are numerous. Uh, right. We we all are facing that infringement in, in one way or another. Um, it's just, it seems unprecedented that a uh, in this in this case, county government uh, board of supervisors would issue an official letter of support to the resistance. It's like it sounds. And and Jared Huffman, our um, state congress uh, representative, uh, is doing the same. So it seems it's a it's a pretty divided issue. But really, it comes. It looks like 
even on a governmental level, there is a lot of support and understanding for that resistance. Is that yeah. is that true? Is that your perspective? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that we're we're. I think the Bay Area and, and other parts of the country where there's a lot more sort of uh, you know progressive thought, uh, more so. Uh, but I also think that there, I mean, folks around the country, even I would say staunch conservatives, are maybe thinking about hmm, maybe there's a point here that uh, we might have to sort of uh, listen to the bird in, in the can, the canary in the cave, right? And I think Indigenous people have always been the canary in the cave, you know. Um, yeah, especially conservatives, I would think, what are you conserving, right? What are, what are you right. protecting? Yeah. Uh, often that love for the land, if it really can be framed and it's true that it's simply corporations, I've heard and read that both the oil as well as the jobs as well as the money, it's right. all not quite true when you dive in. The, the, the jobs will only be created during the production phase, of course, and then there's a minimal crew to maintain right. the pipeline. Right. Um, right. So like when you really look at the economic impact, it is not at all as great as it's stated or sold to us. And even somebody who, who is American, loves the land uh, and would consider themselves conservative or Republican, this is our republic. This is our country and our land as much the environment is a, is a cultural good that needs to be protected, of course. Right, and, and I think that that's where all these intersections of, inter quote, intersectionality come in. You know, these uh, collaborations and collectives are going to mean a lot. And uh, water is life. I mean, uh, this is where we're at, Helga. This is, nothing has changed. I think things have gotten worse. I think the environment is, uh, especially uh, now with certain administrations that are more conservative now that, you know, they don't even believe that climate change and sea level rise exist well you know yes. um it's we're here this is this is our standing rock as a last important takeaway and you talked about uh, things have not changed uh, sure um, um the education has increased and at least right now in the political climate the environment is definitely at stake more than ever How can people just repeat that directly? What's the most important support somebody can give in addition to writing your representative um, and urging them to be in support of the resistance? But you were talking money, blankets. What Would you encourage yeah. people to go there, actually? So I would say that... Like, what's the hope for the people there? I think that there's uh, Native organizations that your listeners can reach out to. Um, Inter Intertribal Friendship House is one in Oakland. They just had, a, yesterday, we had a, a sort of like a fundraiser, quote, not celebration, but a, but a you know, a, an honoring of the people. And I, and, and, and I want to just say lastly that I am completely humbled and honored by the people that are there, all people that are there, especially my indigenous brothers and sisters who um, are uh, surviving. And, uh, you know, the, with this cold, the weather, and, you know, babies being born there, just, it's amazing the level of resistance and love and hope that uh, these tribal members have for the world. It really is a demonstration of complete love, uh, love of humanity, you know, love of the water. You know, it's for our survival. But there are different organizations throughout uh, the country and uh, uh, here in the Bay Area that uh, you can reach out to. The Soskal Council in, in Napa, also Charlie Toledo out there, the executive director, also has ties to folks in, uh, in at the pipeline. 
a gathering of tribes, uh, that organization, it's a store out in Berkeley, that also director there is also a major activist. And I get you all that uh, information if your callers, your, 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 your listeners are interested, that, that they can get a hold of them through you. Again, just I think we, we need to, uh, this is a full press, full court press that we need to do uh, with our representatives and our friends and neighbors. Great. And may we hear that message that was bestowed on us or, or shared with us some 250 years ago. May we hear it this time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. I want to just one last thing. Sure. Can you share what that means? I want to thank uh, our uh, want to thank our grandfather, our grandmothers. Uh, um, give thanks, and we pray to the different uh, Nagualus, the different uh, grandfathers and grandmothers that, that protect this land. We pray for this earth. We pray and give you thanks for everything that you've given onto the people, all my relations. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you, David. That's David Escobar, Lenka Poton, Indian, our guest today in this hour of ancient wisdom and indigenous rights, lessons from Standing Rock. Thanks for making the time and uh, good luck. Keep us updated. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, David. Bye. Okay. David Escobar is a member of the indigenous Cooks Katan Collective, also the former adjunct professor for Native American Studies at Dominican University. And changing gears, moving from ancient wisdom to sustainable agriculture, honoring the land through sustainable land practices, organic and biodynamic agriculture, the update from the world of fruits and vegetables from the produce dock in San Francisco, our consumer segment on what to buy, how to buy it, how to store it, and what to do with it. Here is What's in Season. And with me now is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, shoveling around there already, Earl Herrick. Earl, do, you, <laughs> do I have you on the line? Yes, yes, I am here. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Are you running between coolers and trucks? Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's happening? That's how I get my exercise, running up and down the stairs and in between the coolers. Oh, wow, well, you know, it's... It's a funny time in the produce world between holidays. Yeah, huh? Yeah, because you have this huge explosion. I mean, absolutely gigantic outpour of of production and shipment and rotation. It's just uh, how mad. come? Why do people eat more? Or like, is that possible? They, it's the same <laughs> amount of people, whether they gather as a family or they are in the individual households. Yeah. How come there's way more produce being bought? between the holidays. I don't get it. Well, I think some of it is it is a, a food-centric time. So, I mean, there are days where I think there's a portion of us that don't necessarily have a, have a meal uh -huh. or, you know, out of choice. Yeah. But this one is totally focused. So it's not just one meal. 
I mean, when you get together on a Thursday night, I mean, I know some people that celebrated Wednesday, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of a whole weekend because you have many people have relatives. Uh, but it's travel. the same people. It's the same people that come from somewhere that eat the same amount of, of food but, as humans. Like it I is only. Just, <laughs> well, well, I don't know about you, but there have been years that I I ate more than I normally do. And but I think that's yeah, fairly common. I, I, yeah, I totally hear that, and it's just yeah. bizarre to me the lines at natural food stores <laughs> and how busy you guys are, and it's the same huh. people eating the, roughly this roughly the same, maybe ten percent more. But how much more can you eat? It's just anyway. I know this is insanely busy, and yes. that's great because people are eating organic. And what is what what is going on oh. produce wise still in the yeah. fields? Well, you know, right now it's not as busy because we're between the holidays, which is a nice little lull. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I know that I've recently, in the last couple of weeks, definitely within the last month, I've talked about citrus season and, yes. and what the end of the year will look like. And, and it was Satsuma really was really the entire ball game a couple of weeks ago because that is the first piece of citrus, and it is so wonderful. And it was a really good year for Satsumas, wasn't oh, it? I mean, it, it felt like yeah. the sweetness and the acid, it, these were all perfect Satsumas. The rain did yeah. not seem to have bothered them that much. Not that much. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think some of that has to do with the rains, generally rain, and then it got clear, and there was sunshine, so they dry out. It's, mm-hmm. it's when rains happen over a period of time, they get moldy. day after day, and it's yeah. hard rain, because Think of Satsuma as very thin skin, and the, the hard rain actually bruises it, and especially if, it's, if there's repetition. Right. So that mostly was avoided. So it's been a great year, um, and several different growers have had outstanding flavor and production. But in addition to that, though that is winding down, though that it's, you yes. can still get Satsumas into the new year, now is the time to really get into the navel orange uh, crop. If you, uh, you know, as I recommend, wait a little bit, wait, wait for the sugars really to develop and, and the flesh to really get that deep, deep uh, orange and high vitamin C, this is when they start really getting good, really highly enjoyable. Uh, so definitely start enjoying the navels. You're going to find better pricing as the season goes on. Is that domestic crop or is it Mexican? Oh, no, it's all domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the production is all over California from north of Sacramento, down all the way to, down to the border of, uh, of uh, in, into the desert mm-hmm. of uh, California. So the production is huge acreage, and it's all the way to the coast. Um, it, it's, it's a fantastic crop. Nice. It's a great time of year. Uh, but that is not the only thing to enjoy. Also, there's another variety, another mandarin type, and that's a clementine. That is very similar to a Satsuma in so much is about the sizing is about the same. It gets a little larger. It, it can have some seeds. The, the biggest difference is the, it's got different flavors, a little more honey to it, and the cells are firmer, so they kind of almost uh, are crunchy, which is I know a little off-putting for some people, but for me, I love it. So the cells, as you eat it, they can actually kind of explode in your mouth. That is a clementine. This year is a low production year. It's an alternate bearing piece of fruit, which really means that it goes from a heavy yield to a less heavy to a light yield, and that has to do with the flower reduction from just uh, the intensity uh, of uh, of production. So the tree kind of gives itself a break by having an alternate bearing year. That's what it's called. 
you go from a high yield, lots of fruit, uh, lots of set, a heavy set, what we, what we, what the terminology we use in the business, which means all through the tree there's just fruit all over the place, that's a heavy set, that's a high yield, to a low yield or a low set of fruit, which as you look at the tree, you go, wow, there's just not as much fruit. And that's, that's kind of alternate bearing. Every other year, the tree does that partly to survive. Is that based on when you planted the tree, or is that true f for all trees? Like, do all farms experience the same alternate years at the same time, or do they do some are in the, in the oh, reduction wow. year and some are in the full heavy set year? Well, that is a great question. Wow, I had never thought of that. Right, in other words, if there's a, you have a naval district like uh, Porterville down by Fresno, are all the trees going through the alternate year at the same time? Exactly. Is it based on the climate or the year, or is it based yeah, yeah, on yeah. when you planted the tree? It could that be. Is, yeah. That is phenomenal. I do <laughs> not know the answer to that, but I'm sure that that has been determined. Cool. Wow. We'll follow wow. up with that next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no kidding. Oh, I love that. Uh, so definitely get into that. And also there's the caracara, which some people call oh, it yeah. pink, nice. pink navel. Yes, beautiful. But all, it's just a different color. It has really, really great flavor also. Uh, you know, and, and so really this is the time of year where you want to be eating citrus out of hand rather than just juicing. The navels and caracaras do not make... Uh, good juice. They will not hold the metabolism as such that they get they turn within a certain period of time. I can't remember if that's 24 hours or not. And the and the fruit is is not doesn't yield a lot of juice like a Valencia. Though the little tangerines yield a lot of juice. They're just so tiny that it's pretty laborious to try to juice. Even though for Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago we had some mimosas with uh, Satsuma juice. So you're saying you can make orange juice out of those caracaras and navels, but you should drink it right away. It doesn't last in the fridge? Correct. Huh. Correct. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, we occasionally we have customers that are new juice customers, and they say, well, give me a, something to juice. I go, well, we're out of Valencia's. Well, give me a, that other navel. I go, oh, no, you don't want that. That's yeah. so interesting. So, so why, why, does, why does a Valencia last so much longer? More acid? Uh, I think it has some, something to do with the year. In other words, Valencia is out in the summer, the spring, summer, and fall, where that is a low moisture time in California. Oh, gotcha. And, yeah. and, and mm -hmm. rain is really, uh, it, though obviously all trees and orchards need rain, but it, it also, is heavy rains, which is what happens in the winter, it, it, it's got the adverse condition that it just gets waterlogged. So I think that's probably the, the, the biggest component. Uh -huh. Difference of that. Great, really good to know. But you you can make, and I know you use three or four or five different types of citrus yeah. in the same glass. So you can use a mandarin and a caracara right now. Flavor wise, it's wonderful if you drink it yeah. right away. Yeah. Uh, but it won't quite be as much juice. So you might need one or two more pieces of of fruit yeah. to yeah, get to the same. It's a little, yeah. So and since it doesn't yield a lot of juice, it's kind of expensive per ounce. Right. Uh, if, but I but I understand, you know, some people are religious juicers, and that's what they use, and so. But for you, okay. really, more the finger food. You would peel them and or cut them in, uh, yeah. In quarters, yeah. Yeah. In quarters or eighths or whatever. Yeah, and eat them that way. They're a little hard to peel, but they don't have any. Uh, the navels don't have any seeds, and it is that, you know, that that famous hand eating. 
uh, piece of fruit. Now, as the season goes on into the new year, we're going to get other varieties of mandarins uh, out, the encore and the tango and the page. They'll come out after the first of the year, plus, of course, the blood orange. Yes, beautiful. Uh, that's, that's for the new year, and, and there's the endless variety. That's really what to look forward to as new year comes comes upon it. Interesting. So you're saying that the caracara and the navel are both a little bit harder to peel, so you would just cut wedges, right, with a knife? Yeah, exactly. Huh, cool. Uh, now, Very cool. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. Now, some so coming out of certain districts, certain navels are going to have a very thin skin, and other navels are a thicker skin that, that's also a varietal. There's several different varieties of, of each. Mm-hmm. And some have thicker skins, which may be a little easier to peel. And some are real thin skins, and those puppies are, are hard to peel, though obviously they have a greater uh, proportion of, of flesh to skin, which is very, you know, very positive in, in that kind of return for your dollar. Uh, cost-wise, um, it's, it, with the supply, uh, with, the, with the clementines, with the supply being down, the price is quite high. You know, you could be paying like $3 a pound. We're a navel. Uh, you probably get some on, on uh, special as the year goes on, probably 99 cents a pound on some navels as the season gets into the new year. Because the navel season will last all the way till May. So you have a good portion of the new year part of winter and the early spring. And quick question to wrap up, counter or fridge? Where do you store them? Again, I, I put them on the counter, mm-hmm. but if you're going to get them for, if you, if you want them to last more than three or four days, put them in the refrigerator, then take them out of the counter, sure. get them up to uh, room temperature a bit, so that's where the flavor and, and the juiciness is going gonna, is gonna to be more, more pronounced. But if you see a great deal, um, a week mm-hmm. in the fridge, if you had to, no problem? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then take them out the night before. Uh-huh. If you're going to use them the next day, they'll be fine. And again, uh, keep them in a dry, cool place. That's the best. Cool. And of course, more information always, earlsorganic.com yes. Yes. with photos and varieties and even tips on what to do with them. Uh-huh. Amazing. Thank you, Earl. Citrus and perfect for the pre-next holiday days where you get together with people. You don't want to get sick, packed with vitamins and nutrients, of course, yes. as nature always provides. Citrus, perfect. it's where it's at. Thank you so much. We'll have you back next week. Happy holidays. Looking forward to it. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye, Bye. What's in season and ancient wisdom and indigenous rights? Lessons from Standing Rock, our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, all about land use and reverence. I'm Helga Helberg, and I very much look forward to being back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening. Take care. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate Producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. 
Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information at batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is talkorganic. And we're also on Instagram. I am Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>